I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash historyofmethodism. Today's episode, Epworth. If you Google Epworth, it takes a while to get to England. The first hit I have goes to Epworth Children and Family Services in Missouri. Then the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which was developed by Dr. Murray Jones at Epworth Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Epworth Hospital was built in 1920 through the Methodists in Australia. As well, there are a lot of Methodist churches named Epworth, a lot of Sunday school classes and mission outreach programs that are named after this small town in Lincolnshire, England. We've already talked about Samuel and Susanna Wesley's time in Epworth and the fact that John Wesley was born there in 1703. In episode 21, we discussed the year 1703 and the different political events going on at that time. What we have missed is the place itself. John and Charles Wesley didn't emerge from the ocean like Venus on a chariot. They were born in a unique place and time that shaped them. The physical geography where we live shapes us, and Epworth was a unique place to be born. Just before Samuel Wesley moved his family there, a radical change took place to the geography around Epworth. We will get to that soon, but first we have to discuss the Isle of Axholm. Now, when I say Isle of Axholm, it probably sounds like I'm talking about an island. When I started researching this episode and came across the words Isle of Axholm again and again, I first looked to the coast of England. I was mistaken. The Isle of Axholm describes a region in northern Lincolnshire that used to be mostly covered in water. Villages like Epworth were built on high ground. Because of the swamps, the area seemed like a series of islands. For all of its history, it had been extremely isolated from the rest of the country. In the 1620s, King Charles I hired Cornelius Vermuden to drain the Isle of Axholm. Since the king had a number of estates in the area, and he thought that the drainage would increase their value. As Joy Lloyd writes, quote, An agreement was signed in May 1626 between Cornelius Vermuden and Charles I as lord of the manors of Epworth, Misterton, Hatfield Chase, and 13 adjacent manors to drain approximately 70,000 acres of Finland. An older word for marsh was Finn, so the area was referred to as Finland. F-E-N-L-A-N-D. There was a lot of disagreement in the area about the drainage because there would be a loss of common lands. This led to riots, and the king eventually reduced the acreage that he would gain, but an agreement in 1636 again reduced the common lands and gave 7,400 acres to Vermuden and a number of settlers, many of whom were French Huguenots fleeing persecution. The draining of the area was complete in 1628, but controversy continued up to 1691 about what portion of the land was for the king, the developers, or the commons. 
The folks who had lived on the marshes were called Finns, F-E-N-S, or Finmen, and their rebellious streak lasted even after controversy over the drainage had ended. The manor of Epworth, an area larger than the town, covered the southern three-quarters of the Isle of Axholm. The word manor is used in a technical sense. When we hear the word manor, we may think of mansions today, but there were specific legal realities to the manor system. As the Reverend Stonehouse notes, quote, the origins of manors seem to be involved in some degree of obscurity. The name is either from the French manoir or from the Latin maneo as the usual residence of the owner of the land. Every manor was the similitude of the kingdom at large during feudal times. The Lord divided his manor as the state had divided the kingdom into two parts. The one part he retained for his own support. The other part was parceled among his dependents, who returned him their services. The common lands were a part of the manorial system, and each manor doled out its share of commons in a unique way. The controversy around the drainage had to do with how much land was left for those who had already been farming in the area. There had been an agreement between the lord of the manor and the commoners in the 15th century that still held sway, and local leaders used it to fight to retain a larger portion of the newly drained and diked area. After the drainage, the population rose. In 1603, there were 770 people living in Epworth Parish, that is, in the area surrounding the town. The population rose to around 1,000 in 1642 and stayed about the same size until 1686. Child mortality was high for a number of those years, but no higher than anywhere else in the country. Dysentery and other diseases killed many children in the last part of the 17th century and influenced many families like the Wesleys, to have more children. As Hannah Newton points out, between 1580 and 1720, quote, almost one-third of young people died before 15 years of age. The area surrounding the town had good, loamy soil. As Reverend Stonehouse writes in his history of the area, quote, Epworth Field must have been one of those places selected by the first cultivators of the soil for the purpose of agriculture. It is a fine, rich, brown loam than which there is none more fertile in England. Maldwin Edwards also relates that when Dr. Adam Clark visited Epworth in 1821, he said that even at that date there was no road on leaving Epworth for upwards of 40 miles, but fields of corn, wheat, rye, potatoes, barley, and turnips which were often crushed under the carriage wheels. The Journal of Abraham de la Prem gives a lot of context to the area around the time of John Wesley's birth. Prem writes, quote, Yesterday I went into the Isle of Axholm about some business. It was a mighty rude place before the drainage, the people being little better than heathens, but since then ways have been made accessible unto them by land. Their converse and familiarity with the country round about has mightily civilized them and made them look like Christians. There is nothing observable in or about Belton Church that I could perceive. There is a pretty excellent church at Epworth. The chancel of the church 
was formerly a most stately building, almost as big as the whole church, and all arched and doubled roofed, but falling to decay, they made it be taken down, and a lesser one built out of the ruins thereof, which was about twenty-five years ago. All on the east end of the church and over against the south thereof stood a famous and magnificent monastery of Carthusian monks, which upon the Reformation were all expelled, and the monastery pulled down to the bare ground, to the great shame and scandal of the Christian religion. The minister thereof is the famous Mr. Wesley, who set out the celebrated poem of the life of Christ. Describing the town itself, Reverend Stonehouse writes, quote, The town of Epworth is pleasantly situated on the side of a hill. Three streets lead into a small but neat, clean-looking marketplace, and that which comes from the west is in length considerably more than a mile, having here and there a good house standing apart, with a garden and small enclosure between. The land was fertile, but the people were not gentle. They were used to speaking up for themselves with the crown after the drainage, and so when the Wesleys first moved to town, they didn't suddenly change all their ways to match the strict morality of their new parson. John Wesley later related to Henry Moore that, quote, On one occasion, his father found a farmer cutting the ears of corn from his tithe sheaves and putting them into a bag. The rector marched the farmer back into the Epworth marketplace and, turning out the contents of the bag before the astonished people, he told them of the farmer's petty pilfering. Then he left the discomforted man to the judgment of his neighbors and with the most complete sang-froid went back to the rectory. Maldwin Edwards continues, quote, It was characteristically brave, but was it wise? These men made violent enemies. In the previous century, the Finmen had been known to burn the crops of their opponents and to kill their cattle. In 1697, a much-hated landowner, Nathaniel Redding, had his house burnt down, and there were indications that his enemies intended him and his family to perish with the house. Already in 1702, Samuel Wesley had suffered the loss of two-thirds of his parsonage by fire. Again, in 1704, fire destroyed all his flax. We already shared the story of the Epworth fire, but it is important to realize that it wasn't an isolated event. One of the curiosities of history is that another boy born in Epworth at the beginning of the 18th century also changed the world. Benjamin Huntsman, the creator of European crucible steel, was born in 1704 to a Quaker family in Epworth. He was a clockmaker who developed this new method of steel manufacturing that turned Sheffield into the steel center of England and helped kickstart the Industrial Revolution. Because Huntsman's family was Quaker, it is highly unlikely that John and Benjamin spent time together as children, save for the occasional frolic in the greens. In our next full episode, we will look more closely at the childhood of John and Charles Wesley by reading the letter Susanna wrote to John later in life which he republished. But before that, one last story of Epworth. Soon after, young John went to boarding school at Charterhouse, and while Charles was at the Westminster School. It is a ghost story. Near the end of his life, John Wesley published an account of the events based on the witness of his father, mother, and seven sisters who were present at the time of the haunting, from December 1st, 1716, until February of 1717. Here is the beginning of Samuel Wesley's account. 
From the 1st of December, my children and servants heard many strange noises, groans, knockings, etc., in every story in most of the rooms of my house. But I, hearing nothing of it myself, they would not tell me for some time, because according to the vulgar opinion, if it boded any ill to me, I could not hear it. When it increased and the family could not easily conceal it, they told me of it. My daughters, Susanna and Anne, were below stairs in the dining room, and heard first at the doors, then over their heads, and the night after, a knocking under their feet, though nobody was in the chambers or below them. The maidservant heard groans as of a dying man. My daughter Amelia, coming downstairs to draw up the clock and lock the doors at ten o'clock at night, as usual, heard under the staircase a sound among some bottles, as if they had been all dashed to pieces. But when she looked, all was safe. Something like the steps of a man was heard going up and downstairs at all hours of the night, in vast rumblings below stairs and in the garrets. My man, who lay in the garret, heard someone come slaring through the garret to his chamber, rattling by his side as if against his shoes, though he had none there, and at other times walking up and downstairs, when all the house were in bed and gobbling like a turkey clock. Noises were heard in the nursery and all the other chambers, knocking first at the feet of the bed and behind it, and a sound like that of dancing in a matted chamber next to the nursery when the door was locked and nobody in it. Even Samuel begins to believe something strange is afoot. He makes the connection to prayers for the Hanoverian King George, to whom he has sworn, and Susanna has not. John Wesley, in his account, mentions the rift that emerged between Samuel and Susanna over prayers for the king in this incident of the rectory ghost. The girls had named him Old Geoffrey, and historians have often made a connection between the ghost story and the Jacobite rebellion. The Jacobites, who were followers of the Stuart line instead of the line of William and Mary, Anne, and the Hanover Georges. The Jacobite rebellion of the year before, in 1715, when James II's son, James Francis, landed in Scotland. Queen Anne had died in 1714, and the Hanoverian George had just been crowned, so James Francis thought his time was now. England, however, did not. The Jacobites lost battle after battle. James Francis became ill during the Scottish winter, and his main financial backer, King Louis XIV, died, leaving Louis's five-year-old great-grandson, Louis XV, as king. The Jacobites, though, functioned as a ghost story of sorts in England, more of a phantom threat than a real one. But phantoms still hold power. We will go into more detail about the Jacobite Rebellion in episode 30 on the reign of King George. But just like the Jacobites, the ghost in Epworth did not last forever. The story of the Epworth ghost is still relayed today. In 1917, Dudley Wright collected all the writings of the Wesleys on the event in a book titled The Epworth Phenomena, which I will link to in the show notes, and you can access on our website, historyofmethodism.com. The point is not the veracity of the tale, but the context of the place. Epworth was not London or Newcastle or Bristol or even South Ornsby. It was a unique place that shaped the people there and the stories they told. It shaped how receptive or unreceptive the local population was to the ministry of Samuel Wesley. Before we get to Susanna Wesley's vision of parenting, we have a special bonus episode. I will be interviewing Michael McKenzie, an associate professor of philosophy and religion at Koika College, about his recent book, 
A Country Strange and Far, The Methodist Church in the Pacific Northwest, 1834-1918. While we are barely to 1716 in our history, it may seem strange to jump ahead. But there are a lot of similarities between the way the geography of the Pacific Northwest challenged the Methodist Church in the 19th century and the ways in which the Isle of Axholm challenged the ministry of Samuel Wesley. We will also talk about how history is not just entertainment, how it forms and informs, in explicit and implicit ways, the struggles of our present day, next time on the History of Methodism. <laughs>